Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. Welcome. Today's episode is focused on the economics and politics of climate change, both more globally as well as locally. To get a global perspective on the state of climate negotiations and the recent U.S.-China climate deal, I speak with Lee Phillips, a science writer and journalist who's written for Nature, The EU Observer, and many other publications. He also has a book coming out early in 2015, so be on the lookout for that. My second guest is economist and former head of ICBC Robin Allen, who will update us on the oil pipelines here in Canada. She'll talk about the cost-benefit analysis that somehow always comes out in favor of the interests of large oil companies, as well as her investigative work into the corporate structure of Kinder Morgan. Kinder Morgan, of course, is looking to greatly expand the existing Trans Mountain Pipeline from the tar sands in Alberta right here to Vancouver, and its worksite on Barnaby Mountain is currently subject to daily protest and civil disobedience. First up, however, my conversation with Lee Phillips. So, so Lee, you're currently writing for the very good Road to Paris site that's run by the International Council for Science. And maybe its title is a good place to start. Um, it refers to the next big global co- climate conference um, to be held in Paris in 2015. What is the state of global climate negotiations leading up to Paris and what's at stake there? Uh, how long is a piece of string? Uh, actually, unusually, there has been... Uh, a fair bit of good news in the last uh, last few months. Uh, after after many years of uh, of, a, of a real impasse uh, between uh, various different major figures within climate negotiations, we we have seen a, a, a fair bit of good news. Most recently, of course, the the big breakthrough is between is the deal between the United States and China that was announced. Uh, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago now where we are finally seeing for the first time China committing to you know, you know the, the the peaking there of their their uh, their emissions by 2030 and the United States uh significantly increasing their uh, their emissions reduction pledges uh pledge both of the pledges are not enough to meet uh, the uh, 2 degrees warming limit that uh, it, uh has that is internationally agreed but it is a step change in, in in sort of the commitments from both these sides. You, you mentioned the two degree limit that's, you know, sort of self-imposed. Is that still what kind of reductions would that entail? And is that still a realistic target uh, globally going forward? Uh, oh, it's it's hard to say. Uh, I think it is still it's really important that we stick to this two degree limit. Uh, having said that, there has been there's been some research done by a series of mathematicians and quantitative policy analysis and climate uh, uh, climate researchers uh, that I actually just this this week I've been writing about an article will be coming out on Road to Paris in the next few days um, on sharing out the the carb what remains of the carbon pie so the the carbon budget that is left the the the, the thousands of gig, uh, gigatons that are are left. Uh, if we are to uh, to stick with a, a two degree limit, what they did was they developed a, a fairly neat formula that is actually independent of the warming limit that we may agree to. Um, and you can just plug that limit in, uh, whether you want a two degree limit or a three degree limit or 1.5 or whatever it happens to be. You can plug that in and different numbers will pop out. 
the 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 interesting thing that they they found with this is that with a two degree limit it it is a gargantuan task it really is it's going to be demanding basically a a 5.5 um reduction in global uh, carbon emissions every year from this year for the next 45 years uh which is and and that's sort of globally and then that would be shared out uh amongst the the different countries on a uh, a sharing index uh, which is dependent on different uh, levels of fairness so if you want for example a sort of maximally fair uh distribution of the remaining carbon pie uh it would be on the basis of uh per capita emissions um rather than uh, the sort of current business as usual um sharing out of of, of what remains of the carbon pie, which would be, well, you know, uh, basically people keep uh, uh, emitting more or less along the lines of uh, the cuts that they would be imposing would be in keeping with the their, their current emission. The, these two different extremes, one is called equity, uh, the, the more sort of climate justice end of things, that'd be the climate equity, and the other end of things would, is called uh, inertia by these researchers. And that's sort of close to the status quo. No matter how you slice it, the emissions... Um, that uh, reductions that will be required to keep uh, to a two degree limit are colossal um, and colossal from almost everybody other than the poorest of countries. I, th- I think that's actually one of the things that struck me about your your US China piece. Um, and actually, I have I have two questions. So maybe I'll ask the, this first. Um, was basically just this sheer scale of changes that are required, even for the, you know, even for relatively small reductions, never mind trying to actually realistically hit these these two degrees. Um, just how big are these changes? I think you had some good examples of you know the, the scale of, especially in China, the scale of the changes, um, and even in the U.S. that that's necessary. Right. So China's China's the uh, the, the best sort of example to, to describe the, uh, the the scale of the task, and, and China has the uh, the biggest. Uh, the biggest effort to make right now it's um, its emissions uh, its carbon its greenhouse gas emissions are increasing by about eight percent a year now according to a uh, again this this uh, this sharing out of the carbon uh, carbon pie by uh, by these researchers um, there's a number of different scenarios, but no matter again, no matter how you slice it, it's going to be really, really difficult. Um, and for China, the uh, the the to to stick to a, a two degree uh, warming limit, China is looking at basically an eight percent reduction per uh, in its carbon emissions per year. So it's basically a, a complete U-turn for China. This I mean, it's 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 vast. Uh, for a comparison. The, uh, the the most successful decarbonization projects um, in history were the uh, French, Belgian, and Swedish moves to uh, nuclear power in the ni- uh, 1970s and 1980s. France, for example, managed to decarbonize 78% of its um, of its electricity uh, production in that in that period, and that was over and that was over a, about a, a decade, uh, maybe 12 years, a 12 year period. And that was uh, a vast undertaking of a mass build out of, of, of nuclear power stations. And they only achieved uh, a 4% reduction a year. So it's double that basically what China has to do. It's, it's, a, it's, it's absolutely gargantuan. Right. I, I, I've heard that, you know, even 
even the the collapse of the Soviet Union and and yep. the and the bloc of socialist countries there, the industrial collapse there, you know, only momentarily hit these kinds of reductions, and that was during a time of, you know, ex- a, a, extreme economic collapse in in lots of sectors. Yes, absolutely. Um, maybe we can get back to this this contrast that you pointed out, you know, between equity, between the way that reductions are distributed, um, whether in this model or, or otherwise. I mean, I think what one thing that we saw in the in the last sort of round or, or lead up to this round of climate negotiations in Warsaw last year, uh, we saw this big walkout um, of countries from the global south mm-hmm. um, over equity concerns. Does is it realistic to expect that we'll see a different a, a different focus on equity this time? You know, does does uh, does analysis that takes seriously these kinds of climate debt, climate reparations ideas have a chance on the international arena? Throughout these negotiations, the the two big if we if we boil it down, there, there's a there's a series of different uh, impasses, but there are two biggest ones. Obviously, one is um, uh, sharing out the, um, uh, the the carbon pie, basically, who is going to cut emissions and by how much? The developing world has historically said, "Look, we uh, we didn't break the the, the vase. Uh, we aren't responsible for, uh, for 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 fixing it. You guys broke the vase. You 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 broke it. You pay you pay for it." To to the wealthy world, uh, the wealthy world has said, uh, "Well, that's." It's a pretty expensive vase. That's a pretty expensive vase, um, and uh, so that's that's one side of things. And the other is it's actually literally the the paying for it, paying for this is the developing world has said, yeah, we know that if we're going to develop, we're going to um, massively increase the, the the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, uh, but we have the right to develop. And um, so, if you uh, wealthy world are telling us now that uh, we cannot develop. That's not fair. Uh, we will do this, but you and because there are technologies to be able to do this, low low carbon, uh, you know, green technologies. But you got, but they're very expensive, and you guys have to pay for this. And the wealthy world, you know, back, you know, ahead of two thousand eight, was saying, yes, yes, of course, that's that's totally fine, absolutely. And you know, the the World Bank and um, others, um, other other. Uh, other uh, entities made you know assessments of how much this would cost, and they came up with various figures: four hundred billion a year, uh, three hundred billion a year. Anyway, it's in the hundreds of billions. There's a very there's a number of different uh, figures uh, that came out there. And then what did what did the wealthy world commit to? Uh, it was a hundred a hundred billion um, euros a year. Oh, and then it was a hundred uh, billion dollars, which is slightly less. Oh, and then out of that hundred billion. It's not all going to be public. It's mostly going to be private, and um, we're just going to commit to um, a, a few dozen billion um, in fast start money. And then they didn't even um, uh, pony up that. So it's because, of course, there was the the economic crisis. Although I think even without the economic crisis, we would still be uh, seeing you know pulling teeth uh, from the, from the wealthy world to get them to pay for uh, the uh, the the transition. So. I just, I mean, if 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 the moment in 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 the wealthy world we can't get our own governments to pay for, you know, um, uh, healthcare, education, et cetera, so we are seeing austerity across the board in terms of the delivery of public services to their own citizens. It's highly unlikely that they're going to commit 
to um, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in annual transfers to, uh, to the developing world uh, to, 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 to make a low carbon transition. So I, I think these sorts of distributional dynamics um, between, between the, the global north and the south are really pretty well encapsulated in, in the climate deal between the United States and China, or at least between, in this sort of struggle between these two major um, economic powers and major emitters um, who are trying to sort of c- come to terms with, with how to relate to one another. Um, what's, your, what's your take on this deal? Um, I know you wrote that it's more of a diplomatic breakthrough than something substantive. Uh, what can we expect? What's what's happening here? I think the everybody has been uh, and rightly looking to see uh, whenever any new, uh, country puts forward their pledge, their carbon emissions reduction pledge. Does this meet the two degree limit? Is this uh, is is this enough? Are the, the the emission cuts enough? And are they deep enough? Are they fast enough? And and second secondarily, are they fair in 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 terms of a sharing out of the carbon pie? And I think this this is a legitimate thing to be focusing on. But to some extent, it is. Uh, if if you only focus on that, then your conclusion at look after looking at the U.S. Cl- uh, China climate deal, you'll say, oh well, you know, this is this isn't a, this isn't very this isn't very impressive. Um, both sides still aren't um, meeting their um, the, the require the requirements to to to, to achieve a, a two degree limit. Um, but but this it's you can you could put uh, you could pledge whatever you wanted. Uh, you could you know Europe could be pledging oh we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna reduce our emissions by eighty percent by by twenty forty. But if there's no substance there, if there's no real commitment to an infrastructural transformation, and that that's what we're talking about, we're talking about a massive build out of clean energy infrastructure. If that is not in place, then those pledges are meaningless. And so when we look at what are the countries doing to reduce their emissions, or what rather, what are they doing to meet those pledges, we suddenly see the uh, the uh, the US-China deal in a much uh, brighter light. Um, China is doing the things that it needs to do in a, in a way that almost no other country is uh, in terms of their massive build out of uh, um, of solar, of wind, and, and nuclear power. Um, no other country is developing infrastructure on anywhere near the scale. Now, the problem is, of course, that they are also building out uh, massive amounts of, of, of coal-fired power plants at the same time. But they are going down the, the, uh, the, the right path. And the one of the the the, the breakthroughs in this uh, uh, it is in the in the steel is uh, participation between the United States and China in terms of the development of their nuclear power. Uh, I know that nuclear power is not very popular in in many sort of green left circles, but it realistically we just will not have the electricity that we uh, that we need. Uh, to uh, to rapidly uh, make a, a, a shift to a low carbon economy with, uh, with ju- just depending on wind, solar, and other renewables. And so, what are the political ramifications moving forward from this from this deal? 
one of the crucial things here was this uh, was this diplomatic breakthrough that the United States would not commit to any real um, reductions until uh, China uh, did so. And China was basically saying the same thing. More importantly, they were saying we aren't we have the right to develop, and they were refusing to make any any uh, any pledges to to to, re- to reductions at all. And now they are. This is actually pr- a pretty pretty impressive uh, thing. It needs to. There needs to be more meat on the bones. We need to follow up um, as you know, climate watchers. We need to look now at the uh, uh, the five-year plan process, which will happen over the next year in China, and look at the details of that. It's a bit bizarre because we're going to now instead our, our our focus will have to turn to being sort of Kremlinologists, if you will, uh, um, but for, for 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 Beijing and follow the. The really obscure Communist Party process of of building their five year plan. To look at the fine print of that to see if the the, the infrastructural uh, build out is what what needs to be done. But yeah, this is this is this is a bit interesting. And you have a similar a similar sort of deal happening with with India as well. India wasn't didn't commit to any um, uh, emissions reductions, and I don't think they should. And again, this there was an uh, an impasse over. The sharing of uh, of nuclear technology with India, which had been going on for 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 many many years, that impasse was 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 overcome. And anyway, basically, the the moral story is there's some optimism on the infrastructure front out of the last couple of um, uh, climate uh, deal announcements. That was my conversation with science journalist Lee Phillips. Next up, economist Robin Allen on Canada's oil pipelines, as well as the corporate history and structure of Kinder Morgan. Uh, so, Robin, you've written a lot about the economics of, uh, of tar sands pipelines. Um, and before we get to the specifics of the current fight around, uh, around Kinder Morgan and your investigations there, I wanted to start a bit more generally with the pipeline approval process. Um, and you've written that this process specifically is, uh, is influenced by the oil lobby interests and that they exaggerate benefits, deny costs, and underplay environmental risk um, in this process. So I wanted to quickly go through these one by one. Uh, what are some of these ex- exaggerated benefits um, claimed by pipeline proponents? The, the most significant exaggerated benefit is the alleged benefit that uh, comes when a, when a country exports raw resources at the expense of valuing, adding value in their own economy. So, so let's take a look at what the diluted bitumen export strategy is. It's a strategy to extract bitumen, tar sands oil, out of the ground, which is a very heavy substance. It, it is like tar. That's why they used to call it the tar sands. Um, that substance, when it comes out of the ground, is not technically oil. It can't go into most of the refineries in the world. It either has to be upgraded uh, uh, in Alberta, or it can be used in a relatively few number of, of refineries, say, in the Gulf Coast. So when they export it, they, they dilute it with condensate, um, and they ship it down a pipeline, and they send it off to other countries for them to upgrade it and add the value and get it into petroleum products. So to suggest that shipping this resource raw, instead of adding value in Canada, is a benefit is to completely ignore um, the lost opportunities we have when we ship this this bitumen down a pipeline. So we ship away value-added, we ship away our environmental standards, and we ship away our jobs. And so, and then another another situation that exists here is they keep telling us that when they get this diluted bitumen, 
uh, that that is a natural resource with no value added, say to Asia, they're going to get a higher price for it. And then they take that higher price and they call that a benefit. But they don't tell us that when they get the higher price in Asia, it will go up on every barrel produced and sold in Canada. So on a couple of million barrels a day in Canada, the price of oil is going to go up if they're successful. And the cost gets passed on to us, consumers, businesses. We pay it at the pumps. But they never include that increased burden on us uh, as a net against the benefits they claim. So, so consistently they say, here are the gross benefits that we're going to get. We don't care about the costs to our future, our economy, our environment, um, to any, any of the other costs related to this. We're not going to net them off. You have to exist accept our gross benefits as the benefits from these projects right a sort of a sort of get get as much out of it now as as we can strategy and and i mean we also hear these rosy projections in terms of jobs and growth um that boosters are fond of but but what are some of the costs hidden hidden behind these as well well the models that they use uh essentially they rely on an input output model which which is a model that is not intended to predict values um, for pretty much any more than about two or three years. But they take this model that's not intended for the long term and they try to predict benefits for 30, 40 years. So they're, they're totally misusing the model. Uh, it'd be a bit like saying, okay, I want to go, go to Hawaii for, for, for Christmas. Which kind of car am I going to drive? Well, it's absolutely impossible to drive to Hawaii. So that's, that's the kind of models they use. And, and these input-output models end up having extreme forecasts of employment growth. And, and those jobs will never exist. Um, so that's another way that they, they misrepresent the, uh, the benefits of this project. And we'll also just talk a little bit about the environmental risks because normally you would think that, that, uh, that an analysis that is asking Canadians to invest their environmental, social, cultural, and financial capital, because we are, once, once these pipelines are in, we don't have opportunities to use that land and, and uh, our environment for other things. Right. We're sort of lo- locked, into a, locked into a development model of, of a certain sort, but it's one that's, that's highly impactful on the climate, on climate change, and on specific environmental risks along these pipelines, right? Exactly, and and they will not allow any of those risks to be included in the in the calculation. So this is this is they're not presenting of us with a cost benefit analysis. They are not looking at the environmental costs. They are not looking at the economic costs. They're not looking at the social costs. They're not looking at the opportunity costs. You know what else we could be doing, like for example, reducing our dependency on fossil fuels. They're not looking at any of those things. And, and as a result, they have a, an incredibly slanted uh, estimate. And, and we can't believe it. We can't rely on it. So I want to turn now to one particular pipeline, uh, the Trans Mountain Expansion p- planned by Kinder Morgan. So this is an existing pipeline whose capacity is going to be greatly expanded to bring um, tar sands bitumen to tanker terminals in greater Vancouver, um, if Kinder Morgan has its way. Um, and this month we've seen an explosion of protests and civil disobedience right here in Vancouver as exploratory work is beginning. Um, and I think you, you've written a, a very good piece on the corporate history and structure of Kinder Morgan that, at least for me, was quite eye-opening. Um, and I think that the first thing is, what many people might not know, is that Kinder Morgan is actually born out of this infamous Enron group of companies 
um, that crashed spectacularly. Um, what is the genesis of Kinder Morgan and its relationship to, to Enron and its creative accounting strategies? Well, Kinder, Kinder Morgan is named after Richard Kinder and William Morgan. Both were Enron employees. Uh, Richard Kinder started at Enron in the late 80s and became its president, chief operating officer, and member of the board of directors. So he was, he was second in command to Kenneth Lay. Uh, and he was instrumental in the early 1990s, sending, setting up the accounting framework that in 2002, the U.S. Uh, Committee on Taxation found to be uh, in violation of the um, Income Tax Act. So Richard Kinder was, was instrumental in, in setting up um, practices that were taken to the extreme by Enron. And he also set up in 1992... Uh, a company called Enron Liquid Pipelines Limited Partnership. So in 1992, he set up a tax shelter, and in, he became its first chair. So he set it on its direction. In 1997, while he was still collecting a paycheck from Enron, Richard Kinder and William Morgan bought Enron Liquid Pipeline Limited Partnership. And William Morgan was on the board. So this was hardly an arm's-length transaction. It was... Um, it was a, a sweetheart deal where Richard Kinder was able to take a company he'd already set up and then, and then uh, continue to develop it. Kinder Morgan has always been a tax shelter. It's always been designed to, to minimize a uh, fair share of tax obligation. I think, I think that's the biggest claim you make in your piece, in fact, that both Kinder Morgan and its pipeline subsidiary, Tran- Trans Mountain, and this whole mass of companies... They're, they're using this a convoluted structure, uh, creative accounting, uh, you know, any tax loophole that they can fit through um, to dodge taxes. And that this whole whole mass seems to serve basically as a conduit to pump cash out to its owners. It, in very simple terms, how, how does this process work? Well, what, what they do essentially is they set up a number of different companies, and it's a very complex web to transfer um, money and to take advantage of the Canadian-U.S. tax treaty, to take advantage of the legislation that exists uh, in order to also avoid paying taxes in Canada. So, for example, we've been told, and, and I think this is what's most reprehensible, is Kinder Morgan saying, please let us have permission, a social license, to expand our pipeline threefold, to put the Salish Sea at risk because we're going to have more than two super tankers a day transiting the Salish Sea and into Burrard Inlet, and we're going to put your terrestrial lands and freshwater rivers at risk, but please give us this license because what we're going to do is we're going to contribute back in corporate taxes. Meanwhile, the research I've done shows that in the last five years, Trans Mountain has repatriated to the U.S. $170 million a year, and they've paid an average of $1.5 million in uh, cash taxes. In two of the last five years, they got a refund. So this is not a company as much as it stands up there publicly and pretends to be, this is not a company that contributes at all to the, to the um, social fabric of Canada. And if they are given a public license, they will siphon off even more vast resources and pay even a smaller share of, of their obligation. And before, before we finish, I want to ask you about one very last thing that's just recently come to light. I know you're... you're an intervener in the National Energy Board hearings, and you've recently intervened because there's there's actually a big corporate transaction happening right now, um, where I believe Ken Morgan is 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 
is buying buying out this um, some of its subsidiaries. And you claim that uh, both this should have been tackled at the energy before board before they're able to do this, and that this will continue this process of you know of of, of dodging taxes and, and and regulations. Maybe you could say a few words about about what's happening right now. Yeah, I mean it's it's fascinating to be be told that the the concerned conscientious citizens, conscientious citizens on Burnaby Mountain, to be told they're protesters, and that if they try to um, register their concern, uh, they're breaking the law. Meanwhile, we have Kinder Morgan, who is supposed to notify the National Energy Board under the National Energy Board Act, Section 74, whenever a transaction is contemplated, whereby there's a sale, purchase, transfer, merger, any form of the change in the ownership of the regulated assets has to go before the board for approval because the board has an obligation to make sure that those transactions are in the Canadian interest. Kinder Morgan has failed to make that application. And when the deal closes on November 26, um, they will be in direct contravention of the act. So again, despite, you know, Kinder Morgan's relying on our court system to have our police officers do their private security work by keeping people away from saying no to that uh, work that's going on in Burning the Mountain. And it's the same company that will not even live up to a minimum obligation under the Act to inform the board of what they plan to do when they have this $73 billion acquisition. And um, I just find it very difficult when I continually see that this is a company that says one thing and does another, uh, how how this is in the Canadian public interest. And um, essentially my motion asks the board to step up and force Kinder Morgan to be accountable. Good luck. Good luck in that. I, I hope I hope something uh, something does does occur at the National Energy Board there. Um, we might check back with you later. Thanks a lot for, for this, Robin Allen. My pleasure. That was Robin Allen, and that's all for this week's episode. See you in two weeks. <laughs>